Hey folks, and welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And today we have a very special episode, and I know I say that almost every time that I do a podcast, but it is an extraordinarily special episode for me. It is a privilege that we have Sharna Prasad, PT. She's a physical therapist uh, who's doing absolutely amazing work when it comes to the treatment of chronic pain in our specific community, but really on the state and probably at some point on the national level as well. Um, it, on a side note, it is, it is an exquisite pleasure for me to have her on here because Sharna has been such a pillar in our community that the, the inroads that we have had locally and the successes that we have had and the community that we've started to develop in our, our specific region would not have been here if it wasn't for her. Um, but let's, but we'll, besides that, that we'll, just, we'll just get into the story a little bit. And just let me start off here. Sharna, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Kevin. It's always a pleasure. But I know your story really well. Obviously, we've had many, many talks and discussions on that. But can you provide the listeners here, just describe your background. Where, where did you come from, your previous experiences before you were where you are now when it comes to pain, physical therapy, etc.? So I am a physical therapist from India. I graduated in India in 86. I came to the U.S., New York City. Um, in 88, I um, went to school at NYU. That was, I was already a physiotherapist, so I was working and going to school there. And um, after that, I have been around for 32 years doing physical therapy, women's health, um, acute care, um, rehab, um, home health, cancer therapy, um, just all over the place. Yeah, all say. over, yeah. Yeah, I also worked in New York City um, in a chronic pain inpatient program where they would admit um, 10 patients into the program and they had 10 clinicians who worked with those that group of patients so that that was it sounds that was when you it must have been in the 80s or early 90s early 90s okay early 90s because that was when you can almost see the golden age of multidisciplinary pain care yes uh, mostly inpatient pretty expensive, very expensive not quite as expensive as pain care now mm-hmm. um, but what was your experience in that kind of diverse environment particularly since it seems to be making a resurgence now well, um, I went in there because I felt like I was intimidated in treating pain, chronic pain patients. So my philosophy is the things that scare you are the ones that are stopping you from growing. So I jumped in. I didn't know much, but uh, I learned from my coworkers and I took courses and stuff like that. Um, and um, just enjoyed that experience of working my biggest um joy in that uh, inpatient or the biggest learning that was there was through the psych OTs. I found them very fascinating and I found that um, area. From the PT point we were doing a lot of McKenzie stuff and um, manual stuff and um, pool therapy and Feldenkrais and just just a very interesting program. I learned a lot in that process. I, now, now with that though um, you had your own struggles when it came to pain. Yes, I did. Yes, um, in New York, um, I um, I had just started working in an acute care setting and was helping a patient stand up um, with a hip um, recent hip surgery, and I felt a twinge in my neck. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a fit twenty four year old. I'm I didn't give it much importance, but my pain persisted. And um, two years later, I had uh, radicular symptoms, both hands. Um, I I had this feeling that I was 
losing my grip and losing sensation and I was just freaking out um, but I would not feel the pain when I was at work but I would feel it when I was walking to the bus station you know in New York and I was just that hopeless helplessness feeling that oh my gosh what's gonna happen something's gonna happen to me and finally I went and saw a surgeon and he did an MRI and found that I had a C5-6 um, central disc bulge and was told that I needed surgery and if I didn't have surgery I would be paralyzed well I have a fear of being paralyzed like so anybody. I <laughs> like anybody would be but I, I totally freaked out and I was like oh my gosh I'm gonna be paralyzed uh, but of course at that time I didn't have that much of knowledge that if he thought I was going to be paralyzed he should have sent me to the OR directly or you know it would have been an emergency surgery but I didn't have that much of uh, that depth of pain knowledge but anyway so I came back and I talked to my peers and they said that why don't you take this McKenzie course and I think you'll like it and sure enough I did and I I thoroughly enjoyed the mechanical diagnosis part of it I was like yeah yeah we can do diagnosis and we can look at movement and figure out what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong and I did A, B, C, D. There are like three or four day courses and I did all of them. And then the course D, um, they, you know, they treat patients in all of them actually. But in course D, I got picked as, uh, as the patient and um, they evaluated me and they told me, basically they taught me it's safe to move. And six months later, I had full range of motion and I was doing, I mean, full range of motion, no symptoms, and pain-free. So my belief was McKinsey is the way to treat all my patients, and I did for years and years and years. And, um, and then I got into um, pay, uh, pelvic pain, and I was like, wait, that's not working for my pelvic pain. And I didn't really understood pelvic pain very well. So did, but before you got to the pelvic pain, were you finding that you had all successes though? No. Okay. No. There were always patients that I, I mean, the 80% of my patients got better. And I was very, you know, and those were the patients like, oh, radicular symptoms. I've got this. I know how to treat them. And I had that confidence in them. But there were times they, I was always thrown on a loop with certain patients. You know, it's like, ah, oh, what am I not doing? I'm doing the end range. I'm doing everything I've been told. What am I missing? And, and those were the patients that would always challenge me because I, I'm a person who likes complexity. I like complex puzzles. I like complex events, planning and all that. So to me, this was like, wait, why are, why are we not able to help everyone? Or, or what, what are we missing in that picture? Well, and I'd say sometimes, um, I'm going to reverse my own experiences here, is when you're doing what you've been taught and trained to do, and it seems like a percentage of people respond, but then there's a group that doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then, like for me, it was, well, why? Mm -hmm. This doesn't make sense. And mm -hmm. I, I do think that's really critical to focus on is because there's moments in time that most of us have gone through when it doesn't seem to make sense. Absolutely. It's not aligning with, you know, what are, what we believe to be true and what, you know, if, if this was true and this was, and because of this is true, then this treatment should work because mm -hmm. of that, right. then we should see some sort of success. And for pain, a lot of times what we see is this, well, this is what we believe is true. Here's the treatment. It seems to work, but then it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then that can be throw people for a loop, not only just clinicians, but patients, patients right? Because right. patients have expectations on that. Yeah. The, the thing that was, um, yeah. Uh, frustrating for me was 
now that I am I'm able to see the whole picture was the explanations we were giving to our patients and how and the explanations I believe to be true, like the jelly-filled donut and, you know, the jelly is squishing out of your disc. And even today, now that I, that was my explanation. Mm -hmm. And that jelly um, that's squirting out is pressing on your nerve root and that's what's giving you the symptoms. And uh, as we do this exercise, we're helping the jelly go in and I'm going, and today now that if I sit and experience that and I go, oh my gosh, that's such a sticky feeling <laughs> in my spine. <laughs> How was I explaining that? And why was I doing that? But I didn't know better. I didn't know better. And I kept doing it. And I was like, I got better with the jelly-filled donut explanation. Why would my patients not? And I, and I had my personal story to share with them. And, and my patients did get better. Mm -hmm. So that was my 80% of my patients. Yeah. But what, what didn't explain to me was the fact that how is pelvic pain? How, how are we explaining pelvic pain? And the explanations I was getting is, oh, use lidocaine and do manual therapy. I said, no, 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 no. I don't want to know the treatment. I want to know the pain. What I want to understand the pain. So I was a little frustrated with the, the pain part. And I was doing listening and, um, you know, understand trauma with my patients who were coming in with pelvic pain. Because a lot of them do have that. But... I wasn't understanding pain truly. Well, it's it easier for us to, when it comes to back or mechanical structures, really kind of the mechanical structure, we can say knees or shoulders or back or neck or whatever, a biomechanical construct aligns a lot easier. It's a lot harder to talk about a jelly foot donut when it's a pelvic pain though. Yes. It's, Yes, and diagnosis like vulvodynia, mm -hmm. vestibulitis, vaginismus. I mean, those were like, oh my God, what do I, or IBS, or, you know, all those conditions. And I'm going, ah, I'm not sure. I know, I, I really understand what I'm working with. Mm -hmm. And I tried taking women's health courses. I took all these series, but I didn't have clarity in the pain aspect of that and um, it was it was quite a, quite a journey for me in that and then I had my pain experience again so 2013 2015 I had severe low back pain to the extent I would roll out of bed literally crawl to the you know to the car like get to my get to the gym somehow and then um, work out go to work and went from a sitting chair to a standing desk because of course we learned that sitting was the next smoking and that sitting was what was hurting us. And I did that and, um, and I was very frustrated at that time because my patients, I don't really remember if they were getting better or not. All I know is I was not there. Mm. I was checked out. I was just going through the motions and just doing what I believed was going to be, you know, the you know, what I had learned and through my practice, just going through my patients. And it wasn't until um, I met the crazy doctor, but I call, I call you crazy because when I met you, it was, uh, I said, you know, you're a pain doctor. Yeah, I mean, tell me more. I want to learn more about pain. And I have family who, is, who has uh, more pain doctors. And... Um, and you said something about I don't um, I don't do that kind of stuff. I said, well, what do you do? 
what I teach. I was like, okay, well, I wasn't very impressed because I thought, well, why are you just teaching and not making all that money that people in the world make, you know, from pain intervention and all that stuff. But since I was in so much pain, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to hear what you had to say. And so we kept meeting, what, once a month? And there was, there was this part of me that was like, I really want to be- understand what he's saying, but I'm not getting it. <laughs> I'm really not getting what he's saying. And I invited you to speak in our, um, our department. And after you left, I said, yeah, that's all good, but you don't really know what we do. We're these mechanical diagnosis people. And doctors typically don't know what PTs do, right? So we are these superheroes that do these things and we have magic fingers and, you know, we're just special people and you didn't understand that. I kept, that was my belief. But then I heard your podcast and I heard your podcast, like there was one, there was like five or six sections to it, but there was this one section on beliefs. And I think I must have heard it three times. And I was just like, oh my gosh, Kevin, what are you saying that I'm not getting? And in that, it said, the attitudes and beliefs of the therapist can affect the patient's pain. And I'm like, oh no, this is totally not aligned with my donut module. It was not aligned. It's like, what has the donut got to do with my beliefs? And I just could not see what you were saying. And I thought, you know, this doctor is really crazy. He's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But I, I kept saying curious. I was curious for a very long time, but I wasn't, we were not communicating because there was a part of me that constantly believed that you were not in my tribe. You were someone, you were outside person. You were not the doctor. You were the doctor and you were not a PT. You were not the, speaking my language. The, rel- the information was not relevant to you. Yes. Because you didn't see a connection between my background and yours. Okay. And, I, and I think that's an important point because if you're in the clinical space is to recognize that there, there are elements when you have a patient in front of you and yes, that that extensive educational background can play a role in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have someone who is pretty entrenched and having a very difficult time and is not really engaged with you, uh, there's a good chance that they're, that they're not seeing you, re- that your information is relevant to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I apologize for that. No, no, no. Because I didn't recognize no, that. No, but. no, no. It, I don't think it was your fault at all. It was just my receptiveness, right? I was not in that receptive mode. There was a part of me that wanted to learn, but there was a part of me that was like, no, no, don't listen to him. He's not, a, he's not your PT. He's telling you things that are, that are, you know, very high level, or I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. He, he knows too much. Okay. So the other part that would be interesting is, so you have a background in pretty biomechanical structural mm-hmm. paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and when you were confident with that, so your belief and attitudes along that, aligned and you had those successes that you talked about 80 plus percent until you went to the pelvic realm which is difficult because mm-hmm. now it becomes it's a very difficult model to kind of put in those biomechanical constructs um but you obviously had some deeply grained beliefs mm-hmm. so I, I you know you kind of mentioned it was difficult to process but did you the difference between you and a lot of people is you you read you listened and you were curious and so I'm kind of curious, how did you overcome that? Because any of us, when it comes to our belief systems, and, in, and the closer that belief is to who we are, if someone challenges those belief systems, we're going to get a visceral reaction to them. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious, how did you 
I struggle with that sometimes. So how did you actually so, cross that bridge? Great question. Because you see, I told you, I was going through pain myself. I had severe pain in my back. So the fact that what I was doing biomechanically was not working. Yes, I was able to centralize my symptoms based on McKenzie, which I'm not sure if you're um, familiar with. I was able to centralize my symptoms. I was able to, I had a directional preference of extension and I was doing extension until I was sore. But the symptoms from my legs, the radicular symptoms was able to centralize to my back. I was not able to get rid of my back pain. So there was that piece in me saying, something is not working. What is it, Sharna? Why are you not able to treat your back? You are a hypocrite. Mm. So that, that when I was questioning my, my training, and I was at that place where I was like, why are my um, vaginismus patients having to come and see me for so long? What is it that I'm not getting to them? So then I was doing that back pain, my personal experience, seeing these patients, my pelvic floor patients, there was something missing. So I was ready to change my beliefs, but I wasn't ready to listen to you yet. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so then I went to CSM, the combined section uh, of the, the APTA conference at Anaheim. Or, uh, so the APTA is the American Physical Therapy Association. That is right. So uh, that's your national conference that for is your right. specialty. Right. And I was like, okay, the Kevin's been talking to me about pain, which totally doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to go there and listen to a PT. So Adrian Lau was the speaker, and he had this talk. And the first question he asked was, what is pain? And I said, but that's a dumb question because, oh, well, you get hurt, you have pain. You know, your disc comes out and hurts a nerve and you have pain, duh, that's a dumb question. And somebody in the audience, you know, some young DPT kid said, pain is about protection. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> and he goes, I mean, I'm talking to myself. I said, no, it's not. And he goes, and then Adrian kept talking and I'm like, Wait, wait, what it wait, wait, is it is it protection? Or is it harm? And I just and that's when I my jaw dropped and I said, Oh my god, this is what Kevin's been trying to tell me. And I'm like, I was going in this na 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 I don't want to hear Kevin. And here I was in like two minutes of my being in that class was like everything fell in place. And there was this whole thing about New York when I was having my cervical pain, I was lonely and um, my telephone bills um, to um, India was $700. We didn't have cell phones and we didn't have WhatsApp and we didn't have, uh, you know, all these calls. $700 was my phone bills. And I realized that there was a piece of loneliness that I was totally trying to avoid and a financial threat and (laughs) (laughs) definitely so that was that and then you also i i realized for my current pain situation that i was have going through that i was going through a lot with my kids at that time like my kids were typical normal american kids and i was conflicted with my indian beliefs with my kids it's like wait 
they're supposed to be in robotics, but they're doing cheerleading. Well, what's wrong? Where, where did I go wrong in this in this upbringing of uh, <laughs> you know my kids? So, it, 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 but I was just conflicted with my values and not ready to accept my kids for who they were and wanting them to change and questioning my parenting style and all that. And I was like, wait, those are the factors that are affecting me more than my back. My back's fine. I don't have no jelly-filled donuts sticking out. I mean, and then within a couple of months after that aha moment, I didn't have pain. I started doing yoga and I said, heck with this extension, I'm going into flexion, I'm going into yoga, I'm going to get myself nice and strong and get back to doing whatever I want to do. And then that was like, the floodgates were open, there was no stopping me. So, so there's a couple key variables I think in that as well is, um, because there's a whole lot of information that obviously we'll not get to in this because that was a lot of conversations, but um, and I'm just thinking it from, from who, someone who might be listening to this because they could say, well, what do you mean you had cervical stenosis, right? You had a surgeon that diagnosed you with, with a central disc bulge, which causes cervical stenosis. Yeah, yeah. And, and now you're saying that your pain was because it, it's coming from your loneliness mm-hmm. and, or your, your back. You're saying, well, now your, your, your pain is coming from your kids and the struggles that you had from that. And... Um, and I think that's a good place to kind of move into because there's, well, as we've discussed before, that language of coming from has some, causes some significant difficulties as it comes to pain. I mean, it's, it, it is easy to, to make that assumption, right? Absolutely. Because when you experience pain and I stub my toe, it feels like the pain is coming from mm-hmm. my toe. But, but how did you, how did, you know, so you're moving from this biomechanical viewpoint where the pain's coming from something. How did this align with your new understanding when, when those floodgates started changing and that belief shift occurred for you? Well, I think the best model I have to explain that in a, in a short period of time is um, your fire analogy. I, I find that very helpful because I use that with my patients. I use that with clinicians. I use that with whoever is talking to me. So the, it's very simple. And I say, well, what is a fire made of? And it takes them a while to talk. It's like, I, I can't think right now. Well, it's like, you know, take your time. Tell me what the fire is made of. And eventually it comes down to fuel, oxygen, and heat. It's like, okay, what will happen if one of those elements is gone? So a fire will die. Duh. I mean, it's like, it's like, well, obviously. I said, okay, well, is it okay if I explain to you what, how pain is constructed and I'll say okay it's got sensation which is your fuel the oxygen that is your emotion and um, your thoughts your cognition is your heat and if one of them goes down your pain will go down and then I'll explain to them I said these are the thoughts you shared with me in this session right now you're worried that um, you're not gonna have a job you're worried that um, your your husband is going to have some issues, health issues. You're worried about your kids um, getting DUIs and stuff like that. Those are your thoughts. And you're thinking, well, if I have this diagnosis, I'm not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. Um, uh, I, I might be, I'm going to become like my mother, be in a wheelchair. I'm going to go in a nursing home. So those are all your thoughts that you're going, you're processing that. 
and then your emotional part of it and the fuel part of it and then the sensation what is the sensation the sensation is the burning the tingling the sharpness it feels like a knife stabbing you and the emotional part the oxygen is the most important I'm not most important I shouldn't say that because they're all important because they're each contributing in their own way but for me as a clinician I am looking for that emotional part what is the meaning of pain where are you go what where are you going with this where is it taking you and well and I think that's important right because like in a fire if you breathe 100% oxygen on it no matter what the size of the initial fire is you can blow that thing up absolutely and and we've actually talked about numerous times you change the meaning and you can dramatically change the experience that you have absolutely so I, 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 I'm with you. I think all of those elements are important. You have to understand how those elements fit together on the individual face in front of you in the particular clinical context of this moment in time because it can change dramatically. But that oxygen is so key. Yeah. Yeah. So is it okay if I share a story? Yeah, well, please. So I had a patient who, um, an older guy, came to me and um, shared with that he had severe low back pain and he told me that he had a diagnosis of spinal stenosis and I said okay so what has that done to you and he said that I have not been able to do anything for the last three years I, I said well, what did you do I said, I used to build um, picnic tables and I have a property and this and that so I said okay so tell me a little bit about spinal stenosis what do you what do you understand by spinal stenosis he says my canal is getting narrower I said okay in my spine I said okay so what else and he goes well it means that my nerves are getting compressed I said okay and what are the nerves doing to you he says well the nerves are going to get compressed and I'm going to be paralyzed and then he paused and he said I'm going to be paralyzed like my mom and be in a wheelchair in a nursing home. So to me, that was the meaning of his pain. It was a diagnosis. Those were his thoughts that my nerves are going to get compromised, this, that. But the meaning was that I am I'm going to be paralyzed. And that was where his emotional response came. So I explained. I, once I got that information, I said, okay, and then I evaluated him. I, I took him, I walked him through my evaluation, um, which is very, very gross, actually. I had him get on the floor, get up, I had him walk on his heels, walk on his toes, um, had him squat on the ground, get up, and I said, okay, and checked his sensation, checked his reflexes, and then I told him, okay, here's, here's the information. Right now, your nerves are not compressed because you don't have the nerve. Two main things they do is sensory and motor, right? No sensory loss. You don't have tingling numbness around, you know, any part of your body. You, you can feel my hand everywhere. Strength-wise, you've got great strength. You got up from the floor just in a matter of, you know, seconds. So here, here's what it is. We can wait till the nerves get compressed like we're waiting for the earthquake to happen in Oregon and put our lives on hold and just wait. Or you can just go by doing what you love doing and um, see what happens. And then I explained the, the fire triangle to him and the, um, the whole pain triangle to him. And then he came back the next, no, a week later and he came back and he sat with a frown on his face and he said, I have no pain 
can you please explain to me what is going on? And I was like, oh my God, thank God. Because I thought the frown on his face is going to tell me something drastic happened. I said, okay, I have buy-in. Now I can go into it. But before I went into it, I said, tell me what happened. He said, I went home. I had a hard time processing everything you had said. I said, that's, that's okay. He said, my wife wanted to know, but I told her, no, I can't talk right now. So I went home. I processed whatever you told me. Next morning, I shared with my wife this whole emotional and sensation and the thought thing. And she was very happy because she knows that I don't share emotions much and anything. And then that evening, my friends came over for a drink, for a beer. And I told them this experience with you. And they said, you need to stop going to see this therapist because she didn't do any manual therapy with you. She didn't touch you. She All she did was talk to you. And um, why would you go see her? That's not the right kind of therapy you want to do. But I, I listened to them, but I decided that I'm going to do what you said and do the things I love doing. It's, it's amazing the words you use and how it impacts them. And I went to my, um, my uh, picnic tables and I started working on it. I had an order for the last three years that people had paid me to make those tables, but I hadn't been able to fill that order because of my inability to do it. So not only did I make those three tables, I cut wood for eight more, and I put an ad in the Craigslist <laughs> for that. In a week. In one week. <laughs> And I, this is documented. This is in clinical medical records. It's documented. I, I, I take, uh, um, you know, uh, every patient of mine, I go through the patient functional scale where I ask them, what are your goals? How do you rate your score? And it was all zero, zero, zero. It was, uh, his goal was to walk to the mailbox to pick up his mail and be able to um, um, get on the floor to fix something, you know, and then there was one more goal, I forget. But... But he went from a zero 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 to a ten 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 in one week. But then I told him, okay, well, let's talk relapse because that was what I wanted to make sure he understood that this can relapse. And we talked a little bit about that. And I said, okay, let's have an appointment maybe two or three weeks out just to make sure you're doing okay. He never showed up. I called him to check on him. He said, I am um, right now moving sheetrock into my truck. So I have no time to talk. I'm doing fine. Don't worry about it. Doesn't mean he understood the whole pain science, everything. No, that, no, he, he did not. We didn't go through the whole pain explanation, this and that. But he understood that he was safe and his pain was fine. One visit. Talk about value-based therapy, you know, and it was very meaningful to me. So I, I use that tool of yours a lot. Well, and, and I'm sure it's all. Well, you pick one one case example, and of course. and uh, I think I told you this. If not, I hope I wasn't violating anything. But I have a tap. You know, I make my rounds or or whatever. And uh, locally, I know that some physical therapy groups are tracking their outcomes through a national program. And um, I was on the receiving end of hearing some data, and I think it was because I know you. They shared it with me, and your data is amazing where in the for those of you who don't know this they're basically rating the effectiveness and efficiency of treatment effectiveness means people get better efficiency means how quickly they get better 
And so you can have people that are effective, but not very efficient, where you maybe is taking 10, 15, 20, 30 plus visits, which is expensive, but hey, they're getting better. Then you can have people that are efficient, but not effective, where maybe they're seeing people for two or three visits, but the patients aren't really getting better, they're just not coming back anymore. So really the holy grail is how that efficiency where you can do things quickly or work with people where they get results pretty dramatically and fast um, and effective, right? And you're not, just remember, yours were like off the scales. Like the national average when it came to back pain, I don't remember, was like 10 treatments or whatever. You're like free. Yeah. And that's an average yes. number. And that, that's very, you know you're on the right track when you get data like that. Right, so that that changes everything because you you're like the national average is twelve visits and the patients have, well I, I I've got I'm, I've got this I've got this under control in the third or the fourth visit and then you're like okay well I guess I don't need to we can cancel the rest of the visits and and that's very meaningful right that's value based care and this is where we want to be this is I mean our profession right now is a sleeping giant. I heard it from David Butler, I think, at Explain Pain 3. It's like, our profession is sleeping. We are, we are just not ready to wake up and do this work. But I think we need to, and it, 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 it needs to rise, and it needs to happen sooner rather than later. We can really make an impact in, this, in our community. I, I think we're ready. Uh, I'm ready. From a physical I therapy standpoint, I, I would say you guys are a sleeping giant, that's for sure. I do think that there's other specialties that have some huge opportunities as well. They're in coma. In, well, <laughs> some, the some medical part. side might be in a somewhat of a coma. But but some some of the professions are in coma. They, they're not even ready to listen to this. They're just like, don't even talk to me about this. I mean, some of the surgeons, some of the... <laughs> All right, never mind. I well, I, and we can talk, and we have talked for hours before, but um, it, there's a whole lot of stuff I wish we, we will have to have you back actually for another, we'll have another discussion, maybe okay. a fireside chat on this. But for, for like, I went on and on conflict because it's you, you've been practicing for 30 years, and I don't want anybody to think that this, this transition again, when you're looking at a belief system that transitions, that's very challenging to do, and uh. It, it, you made this switch, but there was some conflict around the way too. So how how did you, you know, you, you kind of, you see things, you have the epiphany, and then you have others that don't. So how did you kind of manage those conflicts along the way? Well, the conflicts were very hard because, um, yeah, I, the place where I was working, um, the clinicians were so hardcore biomechanical, and here I was, um, trying to listen to my patients and it became a big thing because I got accused of being a psychologist. I was accused of making my patients cry. I was told that I was not practicing in my scope of practice. Yeah, those were things that were told. And what I also learned that my training had taught me this checkbox way of doing things. Does a pain patient have the patient have pain in the morning, the pain in the afternoon, in the evening? Does they have pain with the walking or sitting or or do they have pain when they bend over? You know, it was all those things I had to take mark. And when I used to do it that way before, I, I used to get annoyed at my patient when they would jump and tell me things about other, you know, like um, I was sitting in church and or, you know, whatever. They were trying to tell me something about their relationship and I would be upset that, wait, you're messing up my checkbox list. Can you just stay with the program and answer the questions I'm asking you? And now my approach is like, I don't interrupt them. 
my my goal is for the first five minutes of my patient sitting in front of me, I go, tell me your story. And I said, what do you want to know? I just keep quiet. I just wait for them to tell me whatever they want to tell me. And I find that, I mean, I'm going wherever they are taking me. I don't have to guide them. And it just feels so, um, feels so light that I, I don't have an agenda with them. Well, and I, I assume for, for many, not all, but many patients as well, that's what's missing in healthcare. We've dehumanized this process. And I can, from a clinical standpoint, I, when you're saying annoyed, I remember getting annoyed too. Because it's like, well, don't you, you get annoyed at the person in front of you because they're interfering with the documentation that you feel you have to do. Um, it's, it's interesting, it's like, well, usually you get older and wiser and you figure out how to make the documentation work for you and your patient rather than vice versa. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating. Now, I want to add on to that, though. So you hear the story, and then you have a question, which I absolutely love, and, I, and this is a huge takeaway for anybody listening now. If you're in clinical practice, and that question, would you mind, what's my favorite, the favorite question that I stole from you is what? Because what, what, what do you ask your patients after the story or when it's appropriate for them to hear? What are you afraid of is my favorite question. And um, it takes them by surprise because they've never been asked that question before. And they go, uh, what do you mean? And I, I don't respond. I, I just pretend that I haven't heard them and I say, I just move my hands and say, whatever that means to you. Or sometimes I'll say, whatever that means to you. And I say, what do you mean? I'm, I'm scared of uh, spiders. I'm scared of this. I'm scared that I'm not going to be, uh, I'm going to be in a wheelchair like my mother. I mean, that's fear. That's, that's fear. And fear is a big part of it. I mean, I, in my case, my fear was being paralyzed, right? I, my story was, I was scared of being paralyzed because of this jelly donut sticking in my neck. Right? So, yeah, fear is a big part of uh, our meaning of pain. And, and, and I think that's, a, that, that's, a, that's such a good question, too, because when we understand really up-to-date pain science and we, and we move away from that idea that pain is a punisher or pain equals damage to understand pain is a protector, what we feel threatened by is what we're scared of. Mm -hmm. So if you can get to that root of what that fear is, and you can move beyond that biomechanical realm mm -hmm. and realize that there's all sorts of threats outside of body threats, there's the social threats, and that can open up so many avenues. So, so I just, I love that question. And, and uh, I just remember when you said it, when mm -hmm. we were doing a presentation somewhere, and I was like, oh, that's freaking golden, that is golden. Well, you know, and that's the piece that I have learned so many golden things from you that, hey, if I can share one golden piece that you think is golden, hey, to me, that's, you know, being the reciprocal learning is what it's all about. Yeah, we're extraordinarily lucky to have you in our community. You've made huge inroads. I mean, it is just absolutely astounding what has occurred in our region, uh, you know, having been here for a while and watched the progress it's just like when you got involved boom it was you were the oxygen to the to the movement here so um any any last things that you would like to say would you like any last hints that you would like to give to the listeners out there things that you would hope that they pull away from this well i am just hoping that we can bring more empathy into our practice um, that we as clinicians start looking at our patients that they're not these opioids 
seekers. They are not people who are out there to take advantage of the system. They are helpless. They are feeling hopeless. And if we have an opportunity to be that kind, just just listen. That's If there is one thing I want this message to go out is to be the kind listener and, and touch them and move them uh, physically and emotionally. That was great. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for um, joining us today. And as always, if you have questions or comments, you can visit us at the blog post at straightshothealth.com. Uh, there's some resources there as well. And until next time, stay well.